1: From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse and the heart of Swing State America, Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia.
2: Thanks, Drew. This is episode 13 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are here at WVMM, and we are glad you are out there in podcast listening land. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode. Well, Drew, this episode will drop a couple of days before Election Day 2016. Frankly, I can't wait until it's all over.
1: Yeah, I mean... It's certainly been discouraging. You know, I'm someone who cares a lot about very particular issues. I'm very interested in policy debates, and it seems like we're not getting any of that anymore. It just feels like like anger and fear is driving political participation, which I, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's consistent with the vision for American Republican citizenship. But well, you know, I brought it up last week, and I'll bring it up again. This populist fear And the sound rejection of the political experts and insiders seems to clearly echo that 1828 election, which is as a person who is working very hard on becoming an authoritative expert in a particular field. That that makes me a little nervous. Yeah, I mean, you know,
2: I was writing stuff about Donald Trump a lot earlier this year and. At this point, I mean, what else can you really say? I don't really know what else there is left to say about him that hasn't already been said. You know, let's just get this thing over with. looks like Trump's going to lose unless something major happens, and let's try to get on with kind of healing uh, our broken democracy.
1: Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I do distinctly remember you writing a blog post on how you were confident it was Jeb Bush who was going to win that Republican (laughs) nomination.
2: Yeah it's just it's it's been unprecedented some of the things that are
1: happening in this election i mean it's really interesting, looking at all the coverage of Trump, I think that is part of the biggest challenge for dealing with his candidacy. He so clearly abides by that old adage of there's no such thing as bad publicity, and it seems that talking about him only makes him stronger and I also think historically that that adage is not applied to politics i you know its it used to be that the smallest whisper could destroy your chances of being elected. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of 2004. I was a student here at Messiah College, and I remember seeing Howard Dean scream, and mm-hmm. and then watching his his campaign just implode with nothing but uh, an ill-timed. Uh, I'm not going to do an impression, but we're
2: going to whatever. We're going <laughs> to Florida. We're going. Yeah, to... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So,
1: well, it also just kind of makes you wonder what Gary Hart is thinking right now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, speaking of Trump. I don't know if you want to confess to this, but is it true that you attended a Trump rally a few weekends ago?
2: Well, let me give you some context on that, Drew. I was at a actually conference of Christian historians at Regent University. They were hosting it. There were hundreds and hundreds of Christian historians, interestingly enough, talking about race and gender uh, in history. And we're there on the other side of campus on a Saturday, midway through the conference, Trump showed up. So I actually couldn't pass up the opportunity to do some kind of anthropological work <laughs> and went over there and, and watched some things and, and tried to get a feel for what a Trump uh, carnival, if you will, is all about. But the good thing that came out of it was I also met our guest today, Sarah McCammon from NPR, who I talked to a little bit about the Trump phenomenon and, and history uh, after the, the rally.
1: You know, I'll tell you what, I, I was talking to a colleague of ours who uh, could have potentially been at that conference and he, he wasn't. And I, he commented that he was glad that you were there tweeting about it and very glad that he wasn't so he could avoid all that all that hullabaloo.
2: But yeah, it was absolutely crazy. As always our studio producer Michaela Mummer is with us in the studio. Michaela, we're talking politics here. Give us a glimpse into the pulse of the student body here at Messiah College. Are they as sick of all this election stuff as we are?
0: Yeah, I think we're all definitely on the same page. This election has been crazy. We definitely did not see, you know, these two candidates, you know, where we we are today. We didn't really see that coming, especially with the whole Trump thing, but you know, I think a lot of us are just ready for it to be over.
2: Yeah, well put, Michaela. I think you're not the only one. And it's, it's interesting that a lot of students here are getting sick of it as well. If you enjoy this episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast or have enjoyed past episodes, please help us keep the podcast going by sharing it with your friends. Please consider downloading, subscribing, and especially reviewing the podcast on iTunes. We're also developing a more concrete way you can support our efforts here. So stay tuned for more details in future episodes. So, Drew, what's on tap for episode 13?
1: Well, if you haven't gathered already, it's our election episode. And we're really excited to have a guest with a very close relationship to this election. Sarah McCammon is a political reporter covering the 2016 presidential election. Prior to joining NPR in 2015, she reported on local and national news at public radio stations in Georgia, Iowa, and Nebraska. McCammon is a native of Kansas City, Missouri, and a proud Midwesterner. She studied literature and, most importantly, history at Oxford University in the UK, while completing her undergraduate degree at Trinity College near Chicago. But first, you have some thoughts on the history of American democracy.
2: At the third and last presidential debate in this 2016 election cycle, Donald Trump refused to say that he would concede the election to Hillary Clinton if she defeats him in November. The day following, he said that he would accept the election results, but only if he wins. Clinton and the media went crazy over Trump's remarks. Historian Douglas Brinkley, political advisor to presidents David Gergen, and Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz were on CNN lambasting Trump for undermining American democracy. These commentators and others are correct. The peaceful transition of power is vital to the success of American democracy. John Adams, the Federalist, stepped aside to make way for Thomas Jefferson, the Democratic Republican who defeated him in the election of 1800. In 1824, Andrew Jackson conceded to John Quincy Adams, despite the fact that Jackson had won the popular vote. On November 8th, the people will speak through the ballot box. They will elect Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, or perhaps a third-party candidate. Democracy works when the loser concedes to the will of the people. Donald Trump, however, is not the first person in American politics to undermine democracy. That honor belongs to the founding fathers who wrote the United States Constitution. Think about it. In the immediate wake of 1776, there were many people in the new United States who took the words of the Declaration of Independence seriously when it said that all men were created equal. They wrote the most democratic constitutions in the history of the world. In Pennsylvania, for example, The framers of the state constitution designed a government with a one-house legislature. The people were essentially unchecked by an upper house or an executive branch. The Pennsylvania constitution gave the right to vote to all men, regardless of whether or not they owned land. Fearful that the Pennsylvania constitution gave too much power to the people, Benjamin Rush famously called the state's new government a beast without a head. The years between 1776 and 1787 were a time of unprecedented democracy in the former British American colonies. In most state governments, the voice of the people informed public policy like never before. Politics was local. Politics belonged to ordinary men, and at least in the case of New Jersey, some ordinary women. But not everyone was happy with the choices the people were making. From the perspective of some educated elites, rule by the people was undermining Republican government. Self-interest reigned. People thought more about themselves than they did the common good. They responded to rising debt, for example, by choosing to pass bills to print more money, giving farmers the right to pay personal debts with worthless paper unbacked by specie. The democratic state legislatures, according to many who arrived in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, were promoting a new form of tyranny. Not the tyranny of Parliament and the British government that the colonists rebelled against in 1776, but the tyranny of the majority. In response, those who gathered in Philadelphia in 1787—James Madison, Governor Morris, Alexander Hamilton, George Mason— George Washington, Edmund Randolph, Elbridge Gerry, to name just a few, wrote a constitution to curb the democratic impulses pervading the country. Again, think about what they created. They formed a House of Representatives, or a so called House of the People. Members of the House were required to return to their districts, the people, every two years to get reelected. Senators, the Upper House, the men who Illinois Representative Henry Hyde described during the Bill Clinton impeachment trial as the gods of Mount Olympus, were not directly elected by the people. They were actually elected by state legislatures, and they served lengthy six-year terms. The Senate was designed to hold the House, the people, in check and curb their passions and self-interested impulses. What about the presidency? Until 1824, the popular vote in presidential elections was not even counted. And again, why should they be counted? The head of the executive branch of government was elected by the state-appointed electors who made up the Electoral College, not the people. And let's not forget that the people have never played a direct role in the choice of Supreme Court justices. In Federalist Paper No. 10... James Madison wrote that the framers of the Constitution designed the government to filter and control the self-interested and faction-laden people. Representatives to Congress should be wise, educated, and independently wealthy men who are most capable of placing the common good over self-interest. The Constitution curbed the democratic impulses of the 1780s and limited the role of the people. Many of the founders feared democracy and could not imagine an American government built upon democratic principles. Did Trump's remarks about his unwillingness to concede the election undermine American democracy? Yes. But he was certainly not the first person to threaten rule by the people. That honor goes back to the men who created the Republic. We are thrilled today to have Sarah McCammon with us from National Public Radio. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thanks. Tell us, Sarah, about how did you get to become an NPR reporter? Tell us a little bit about your vocational journey, how you got involved in journalism, those kinds of things.
0: Okay. Well, growing up, I I always liked to write, and I was always a pretty outgoing kid, and my dad would say that now... I get paid to talk, and that's not a big surprise. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, like most kids, I had, like, a lot of different things I wanted to do. And then finally, I, decided, I kind of settled in college on, on journalism, mostly just because it seemed like a way to get paid to write stuff and talk to people, and that sounded like fun. And so... I you know I studied English and communications and minored in history and you know tried to kind of get a little bit of a well-rounded liberal arts education and then uh, I kind of thought I wanted to be a newspaper reporter because I grew up I was a, you know teenager in the nineties and that was kind of what there was the internet was just becoming a thing and no one was really talking about it that much as or maybe they were but it wasn't really on my radar you know internet journalism didn't really think about radio until I was interning at a newspaper in the Chicago area in college and started just driving a ton, commuting, you know, to to work and to interviews and started listening to NPR on the radio and got really hooked on it and was kind of like, man, I wish I had studied broadcasting because this is kind of, I just loved the... The intimacy of the format, you know, just the voice, hearing people's voices, how they say things. And I just found NPR, like, really informative. I felt like I wasn't wasting my time, you know, listening to the radio. I was learning something, but I really enjoyed it. Anyway... And then, like, long story short, I did, you know, print for just a little while, newspaper journalism, and then basically was able to kind of work my way into a local member station, hopped around Nebraska, Iowa, Georgia. And then when I was in Iowa, it was during the 2012 election cycle, and of course, Iowa was an important state in the Iowa caucuses and in the swing state. Um, so I started doing a lot of, you know, stories from Iowa that wound up going to the network to NPR nationally, and basically based on that, I was recruited to do this.
2: That's Yeah. We're going to get to the this here in a second, because obviously you're covering the Trump campaign uh, for NPR. Um, let me pick up on something that you mentioned. You mentioned we're, we're a history podcast, right? Even though, you know, today we're talking about contemporary issues. But you mentioned you were a history minor in college. You know, maybe there's, you know, you don't have an answer for this. I don't know. But is there anything about your study of history in college that you kind of use on a regular basis when you're out there in the field or writing stories for NPR?
0: You know, sometimes I wish I had taken more history in college, honestly, because when you're covering politics, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're writing about, I mean, where we are today has its roots in things that have been happening for decades, some of them before I was born, some of them when I was very small. You know, there's a lot of references to the Reagan era covering Republican politics. I was alive just barely for the Reagan era. I guess I was born like two weeks after he was sworn in for the first term so that tells you old I am. But, you know, I don't remember <laughs> it in detail. And, you know, certainly, you know, the rise of the religious right was happening around that time and even before. And, you know, there's so many, I mean, again, you know, we're, we're at a point in history that doesn't exist. Our, our current place in history doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? I mean, it, it's it's a progression of, of social movements and political movements and historical events that all sort of culminate in where we are now. So, actually one of my goals for after this election is to go back and read about more of the roots of of the religious right and you know uh, some of the origins of of kind of the things that have shaped republican politics in particular since that's what I primarily cover but i also think and this doesn't maybe totally answer your question but it brought to your question brought this to mind i also think you know there's a really close relationship between journalism and history. And, you know, people often say journalism is the first draft of history. And there is debate, uh, as you all well know, often about, you know, how should history be written? Who shapes right. the narrative? You know, what is the truth? And we hear those debates a lot right now about the media. So I think some of those same questions exist about, you know, which narrative prevails and, and who gets to decide what it is. And and I think the thing that drew me to both of those was very much the same, which is just stories. You know, I'm just fascinated by human stories and how people live and how they make decisions about their lives and how they cope with challenges. And I think, you know, if you look at history or journalism, it, it's really talking about all those things.
2: Actually, you sound like you were not just a history minor, Sarah, but like you have a graduate degree in history. I've been trying. If I can get my students to articulate the meaning of history on that level, it would be awesome. That's a great. That's a great answer. I should also add that Sarah and I met this past weekend. She contacted me about uh, giving some insight into Donald Trump's references to the Civil War. Not many, not many reporters are kind of that politically savvy. So maybe you were using some of your history uh, (laughs) interests there too, as well.
0: Well, thank you. I do feel like, you know, the thing, one of the things though, I mean, you can study all the theory, but like, there is something to be said for just understanding, you know, in detail, reading all those primary sources and reading about, you know, what happened when and how it all fit together. And that's just stuff you have to kind of put in the time to learn. And, you know, that's that's where I feel like I'm lacking, is, like, I would love to have a deeper understanding of, like, American contemporary history. and uh, But fortunately, like, at NPR, I'm surrounded by all kinds of people who, some of them have been covering politics since before I was born, and we all kind of help each other out in that respect. And you know what? The Internet is great, too. Google, I'm sure you talk to your students about what's a good source and what's not, but there is a lot you can just Google if you don't know what it is. But still, I would like to read up.
1: <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that you kind of came into your position through your work in Iowa, but I'm a little bit curious as to how you came to specifically be assigned to covering Donald Trump.
0: So I was hired pretty much from the beginning with the understanding that I would most likely be covering the Republican primary and then eventually the nominee. When I was brought in, which it was a July of 2015, there was a really big field, and you know Trump had just declared his candidacy about a month before that, And, you know, initially it was just going to be sort of follow the wave and see what happens. And, you know, eventually you'll probably be covering whoever's chosen. I'm not sure why exactly I was chosen to cover GOP politics. I think part of it might have been that when in Iowa, of course, 2012, you know, President Obama was the incumbent. So there was no Democratic primary to speak of. And I mean, there was no Democratic primary. There was a Republican primary. So I'd covered that, had some background in covering Republican politics in that respect. And and also our White House correspondent, I think maybe was a little bit more enmeshed in, in covering Democratic politics, because she was already covering a Democratic administration. And so she was going to cover the, the Democratic nominee. I'm not 100% sure why I wound up being assigned to the GOP, but I was. And, you know, when I came in, actually, Trump was the first candidate, I believe that I covered, as I was transitioning out of my previous job and into this one, he happened to be in the South, where I was living at the time. So I went and covered him kind of in like a one week hiatus i had between gigs because he was kind of in my neck of the woods and i was so surprised i was blown away by how how popular he already was you know on the ground how many people showed up and stood in line and i'm talking older people you know in the in the summer heat in the south just to see him and you know they'd made signs and there were also protesters most of them protesting his rhetoric on on immigration and, you know, this was July of 2015, so way before, you know, things usually really heat up. And I didn't expect that at all. I don't think anybody did from, you know, I think a lot of people wrote Trump off as sort of a lark, his candidacy as sort of a stunt, publicity stunt. So I came back from that, you know, and started the job here and said, wow, you know, Donald Trump is really, I was surprised by how much enthusiasm he generated on on the ground And then had kind of the same experience pretty soon after that in August at the Iowa State Fair, which is always, you know, a big event for for political candidates on both sides. He drew a huge enthusiastic crowd. I mean, there were teenage girls like on the verge of tears, you know, following him around the fairgrounds going, Donald, Donald, take a selfie with me. And there were parents with their children on their shoulders. And he was walking through this huge parade of people just being mobbed. And, you know, it really, in many ways, felt out of step with what sort of the mainstream, just the the conventional wisdom was, which was that this was not going anywhere. You can't always judge where candidates going just by crowds and enthusiasm on the ground. But it was definitely something I hadn't seen before.
2: Sarah, take take us briefly through... You know, I, I know when we talked this weekend, you said you're on the road a lot, you know, with following Trump. Take us briefly through, you know, a day or a couple days or a week sort of following Trump. What do you do day to day?
0: Well, every day is a little bit different. But I mean, a typical, I mean, I kind of split my time between like right now this week, I'm talking to you from Washington, D.C., I'm just at NPR kind of keeping an eye on things from the desk, you know, from the Washington desk. Uh, Every Trump rally is pretty much streamed online if it's not on TV. And we have, you know, other I have other colleagues who go out sometimes to the actual events. And so, you know, sometimes I just come back and do kind of the, you know, relatively boring work, but important work of just being here, talking to editors, doing planning, pulling stories together for the future and just thinking about big picture stuff that we need to attack to tackle. But, you know, the majority of my job is out of the office, on the campaign trail. And some of the time I have traveled with a press charter, which is an airplane that is chartered by the campaign and then paid for. The cost is split by the different uh, media outlets, the TV networks, the wire services, the major newspapers, and us. We all pay for seats on this plane. And that is basically a, a plane that follows pretty closely behind Trump's plane and allows us to get to really every stop that he goes to, you know. So if you're going doing three or four rallies in one day, you're not going to be able to make those all on commercial planes, right? It's just not logistically possible. So the charter allows the the press corps to be there all the time. It's typical for I should say for for the candidate to travel with with the press, but Trump has never done that. So we travel essentially right behind him or kind of in tandem and he's in his his own private plane. We have done that sometimes. It's also a more expensive way to travel, and so at times we don't decide that we don't need to be physically at every single rally. We will fly commercial; it saves money. It also gives us a little bit more latitude to break away from the, the you know, the, the throng of reporters and do our own right. reporting. Sometimes that means, you know, like like when you met me this weekend, John. Just. Being, you know, in the crowd and mixing with people and spending a little more time or maybe doing a story that's sort of tangential to what's going on at the rallies, but, but you know, exploring a theme that's come up in the campaign. So, I mean, I guess to give you quickly just a sense of a, like, like a typical day on the trail, it would probably be getting up quite early, catching a flight, you know, maybe a couple of flights to get to a rally, get in there a couple hours beforehand, get through security. You know, it's all secret service, so you're getting... You're getting swept and you're getting, you know, dog sniffing all your equipment and (laughs) you're getting wanded, you know, with the magnetometers that check for whatever they're checking for. And then you get in, you get set up, hang out a little bit, talk to people. The rally begins. You listen to the rally, you tweet, you take pictures, you take notes, you, the rally ends, you grab all your stuff, you, you know, write up something, file it. And that can take a little while. And then often you're back on another plane or maybe to a hotel and then up the next morning doing it again.
2: Wow. Have you met Donald Trump? Have you had a chance to interview him or even just, just talk to him?
0: I have asked him a handful of questions in press conferences. I have not had a one-on-one interview with him. He has not granted one to NPR, though we've asked many times. I shook his hand once. <laughs> at a, okay. at a, there was a small event that, you know, um, a, the the pool, which is basically a smaller group of reporters that goes to, like, say he's you know, doing a roundtable with a group of business leaders or educators or something, and you can't get all the reporters in there. There will be a pool, which is like one or two cameras, maybe one radio person, a couple of print people who are there basically to document it and then share whatever they get with the rest of the press. But that's about it. Yep.
2: Our time is running out here, but I got to ask you one more question. What's the craziest thing you've witnessed covering Trump? I was at the Trump rally in Virginia Beach this weekend. It is uh, part carnival, part political event. I'm not even sure what to describe it as. Maybe could you tell us, like, what are some of the, you know, you're an insider here. What are some of the crazy things you've seen or maybe the craziest thing you've seen at a Trump rally?
0: Yeah, I don't know if there's just one thing that comes to mind, but (laughs) I mean, it's definitely, you know, there is so much enthusiasm and sometimes people take that to quite a, to great lengths. I mean, you see women in like, you know, sequined red, white and blue outfits and you see, you know, uh, you see Trump. Hats and or masks. and occasionally describe the the response at the at the Iowa State Fair, which almost felt like what I imagine like a Beatles concert back in the day must have felt like just the the level of just people freaking out to see him. You know, there, I mean, there are funny moments like, or kind of cute moments, even like there was a little boy at a rally in Pennsylvania a couple weeks ago who like his parents, I think had put a Donald Trump wig on his head. And he was like three or four years old and he was in a suit and he was really cute. And he came up on the stage and Trump held him. And it was like this really sweet moment. And then there were like dark moments like, you know, when, when Trump is just going after the press and, and calling us, you know, disgusting and bad people and the enemy and the crowd of, thousands of people is around you booing at you and angry and so it's quite the roller coaster
1: I'm just wondering how do you respond personally to that kind of his consistent rhetoric of attacking the press and that the, the you know the press is the 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 enemy of democracy and that you know everything you say is a lie and we should only believe what he says
0: I mean, obviously, I you know, I, I'm a journalist, so I try to be fair and objective to everyone. But I uh, you know, I, I can't find that rhetoric about the press anything but disappointing. You know, I'm a journalist for a reason. I think it's an essential part of democracy. It's protected in our First Amendment. I don't think we can have fair and free elections without watchdog press. I also understand, though, that, you know, many politicians on the right and the left think Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz, many others have made criticizing the press and the the coverage of their campaigns sort of a staple of their stump speeches. So it's not like criticizing the press is out of line or inappropriate or unprecedented. But I do think that Donald Trump has done it in a way that is more intense, a bit darker, seems to sometimes step up to the line of, you know, really undermining faith in media as a whole. Uh, rather than, you know, specific, you know, taking issue with specific coverage. And, you know, I think that that is that is concerning. I think, you know, the media certainly should be we should be open and willing to, to be criticized because we do play an important and powerful role. But I hope that we don't get to a point where there is no faith in media and and where, you know, I mean, I think when we're doing our job well, we should be trying to cultivate Exchange of ideas, conversations across party lines, across ideological lines, so that we can, as a society, come together and make the best decisions we can about how to live together in a diverse and pluralistic society. And, you know, if the press, if there's not trust in the press, it's harder to do that. So I think that's, to me, the the worrying thing. I will say, though, that, you know, we also, I mean, I, I know NPR has a huge and growing audience. And we hear from people all the time who are really grateful for a place to come where they feel like they're getting fair, thoughtful coverage with, you know, context. And so while, you know, Donald Trump may not approve of the press as a whole, and some of his followers don't, I I think there's still a lot of people out there who, who do value a free press and value the role that we play in sort of checking what politicians of both parties of all stripes are saying and doing.
2: Sarah, time's up. Is there a place other than the NPR website, is there a place where we could follow your work or connect with you?
0: Yeah, I have a professional page on Facebook, Sarah McCammon, M-C-C-A-M-M-O-N. And then also Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Sarah McCammon. So Sarah with an H and then again, M-C-C-A-M-M-O-N. If you can't find me, just Google me and NPR and then you'll figure out the spelling because it's a lot of consonants, I know
2: good we'll get that up on the blog sarah thank you so much we've been talking with sarah mccammon a political reporter for national public radio thanks for being on with us
0: my pleasure thank you
2: You know, Drew, listening to Sarah, kind of reminds me of my high school dream to one day become a journalist and cover political campaigns. She was great. I love the way she connected history, the study of history with journalism.
1: Well, it definitely reinforces a lot of the conversations we've been having about how everything does have a history. and These campaigns are filled with historical claims, and it seems like so many people don't care about whether they're valid or not.
2: I think journalism programs should have to take like a bunch of history courses or at least learn how to sort of appreciate history because everything you're reporting on as a journalist is kind of embedded in a a, a past,
1: as Sarah pointed out. Although you you have to be careful because I know so many of those popular history books that some of us academic history historians are worried about are being written by journalists.
2: No, I know, I know. But indeed, you know, it's, we we could spend a whole episode on Sarah's point about whether journalism is the first draft of history. You know, maybe you'd get some pushback from people on that. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's well, really you interesting.
1: Know, and I think there's something to be said about all of those people who are complaining and and shouting down the journalists, they're also writing their own first draft of history.
2: That's a great point. You know, uh, so much stuff, you know, the research skills, the writing skills, you know, I wish more historians, I always say this, I wish more historians were in the CNN newsroom and, you know, involved in kind of journalism and other kinds of reporting. So I think that's a wrap, Drew. I think we had a great episode today. I think our, our election episode is a success.
1: I think so, too. And I if you're listening to this on, on the release day, in two days, go out and vote. Yeah, that we can say, right? Absolutely. Without being too
2: partisan, go out and vote. And in the process, may your way of improvement lead home.
1: This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. This podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7, The Pulse. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Sarah McCammon. Our studio producer is Michaela Mummert. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling. And your host is John Fia.